old pilot's plain tales. RAF Form 414, Volume 11. A career in the Royal Air Force involves a lot of training. In the closing months of 1981, I'd completed my Central Flying School course to become a qualified flying instructor, and since joining the Air Force in late 1974, out of the seven years I had served, barely two and a half had been on a squadron doing a job of work. The rest had been in the system, working towards firstly becoming an operational fighter pilot and now a flying instructor. My path to completing this latest qualification ended with the following words in Section 6 of my Form 414. B2 QFI Category Awarded Remarks British Aerospace Hawk Trophy for Best Student QFI on the Hawk I wish I could say it was an honour, but in reality all it meant was that I had kept my nose a trifle cleaner than the other reprobates on the course. The funniest thing was watching Troublemaker and Hawkbender-in-Chief Dave being awarded the trophy for Best Ground School Student. Oh, how we laughed. A B2 QFI is the lowest of the low and at that level one is automatically graded as an average pilot in the role of instructor. From here, the only way was up. The first thing we received was a posting from Central Flying School to Number 4 Flying Training School, and whichever squadron there who needed a smart aleck, brand new, know-nothing instructor. Nige and I were both sent to Number 1 Squadron, which basically meant moving from one building to another a few hundred metres away. Numbers 1 and 2 Squadrons shared a two-storey block on one side of the airfield, whilst the third unit, imaginatively named Number 3 Squadron, was across the other side of the runways, near the beach. They probably had the best time of it. Out of sight, out of mind. We had the convenience of being closer to the facilities on the base. Stores, hairdressers, station headquarters, usually referred to as handbrake house, the simulators, etc. And we were always first in the bar. Number 1 Squadron had the run of downstairs and number 2 upstairs. It was all well laid out and modern with briefing rooms, changing rooms, showers, offices, the instructor's crew room and the student's equivalent. Just outside was an aircrew feeder, a canteen, which offered very inexpensive meals designed to give us all the bodies of a trash hauler. Rotund but happy. It was 1981, and salads hadn't been invented yet. There was no such thing as working 24-7. This was Training Command, which ran from morning prayers, the assembly of all pilots to get a blessing from the chief flying instructor, an emergency of the day Q&A, NOTAMs and met brief at 8am, to the officers' mess bar at 5pm. Weekends were sacrosanct. My logbook shows a couple of trips with another instructor to sweep away the cobwebs and then a squadron commander's check ride with the diminutive and ever-smiling Chris Taylor who ran our bit of the flying training machine. 
At the time, I had 1,240 hours, but I had long ago learned that one was never finished with check rides. The student who was first to receive my wisdom was Chris Chataway, who was on the senior course. We ran two courses at a time, so that when one was starting, the other was about halfway through. I've little memory of it, other than it was a close formation trip, and I felt a bit like I was being thrown in at the deep end. I always enjoyed flying with my students, but in close formation there was never a moment when we could relax. Even smashing round the valleys at low level doing 500 miles an hour, I always felt that I had time to take control and ease us out of a problem. Not so in close formation. In close formation, our cockpit was a few feet, a couple of metres, from the next aircraft's wingtip, a distance that could be covered in less than the blink of an eye. Not exactly Red Arrow's stuff, but close enough to keep visual in dense cloud. We had to take care in the echelon position, not to get too close, especially at high angles of attack, as the leading aircraft's wingtip vortices could overcome the formating aircraft's aileron power. This could be a particular problem on formation takeoffs. Regardless, Chris in the front was doing well, and I'm sure all I was doing was a little coaching. Relax on the controls, gently with the throttle, and that sort of thing. When pilots came to Valley to do their advanced jet training, they were already well-versed in most aspects of basic military flying stuff, like low-level navigation, aerobatics, formation flying, tail chasing, that's follow my leader during hard, three-dimensional manoeuvring, and the principles of lead and lag, etc. In the Hawk, we just took that to the next level so that they could progress onto weapons training safe in the knowledge that their handling skills were well honed so they wouldn't have to think about flying the aircraft and could concentrate on using it as a weapon of war. Their initial flights were all about gaining familiarity with the Hawk and what it felt like to be in what was effectively a single-seat cockpit. When we had bashed the circuit enough and explored handling the Hawk in various aspects like stalls of every imaginable kind, we sent them solo, and from their point of view, the only real difference was a lack of quacking from the back seat. From there it was a matter of building confidence and taking the Hawk to its limits. Max rate turns were a favourite manoeuvre to establish flying skills at high G. The idea was to accelerate to the best cornering speed, the speed when maximum G could be achieved at maximum coefficient of lift. These events were always preceded by a mass briefing given to the entire course and then a pre-flight briefing to brush up on the salient points, so that when it came to fly the manoeuvre, everyone knew what was required. Since the Hawk T1 didn't have an angle of attack indicator to gauge max CL, the student had to learn to feel the level of buffeting that occurred when the wing was producing all that it could give, but not yet in a G-stall, basically light buffet, not heavy buffet, and match that with 6G. 
I don't think we went to the aircraft limits just to have a margin of error available. Like most aircraft, the Hawk couldn't maintain a maximum rate turn without losing energy, so we started the manoeuvre at around 10 or 15,000 feet and descended in a tight spiral, converting our potential energy into speed to stop the aircraft from decelerating. Max rate turns also built up everyone's G-tolerance. Unlike nowadays, pilots in the RAF weren't regularly subjected to something as painful as a centrifuge. The basic anti-G straining manoeuvres, enhanced by the wearing of a G-suit, were taught to the students at the Institute of Aviation Medicine, and it was up to the individual pilots to develop their techniques to maintain these high-G sustained events. To be fair, back in the 80s, most of the RAS frontline aircraft had relatively low max-G limits, whereas nowadays pilots need to cope with 8 or 9 Gs without flaking out. Still, with the early generation G-suits, a 6G spiral was physically demanding, and after a bunch of those, we all came back dripping with sweat. A max rate turn was entered at about 420 knots, with an overbank to around 120 degrees of bank, and a steady pull to simultaneously get into the light buffet and hit 6G. If the G and speed started to lessen, or the buffet increased because of a greater control input, more bank would be required to sacrifice altitude and regain the parameters, and vice versa. The big danger for muggins in the back seat was if blogs in the front let the speed increase, there was a danger that they might overstress the aircraft. Aerobatics were also required learning. More refined than the brutal max rate turning, a well-flown sequence of aeros demonstrated a pilot's ability and accuracy in all planes of manoeuvre. The Hawk was a delightful aerobatic aircraft, able to keep a display in a tight area, and it could be flown with great precision. I seem to recall that it had a 30-second inverted limit so that the fuel-negative G compartment wouldn't empty and flame the engine out, which was a blessing when a prolonged inverted trick was introduced by the more adventurous students. Flick manoeuvres were prohibited in the Hawk, and I don't think we allowed stall turns since such low-speed events might surge the engine. In fact, if the speed came below 100 knots in a vertical manoeuvre, the low-speed recovery drill was required. Throttle, gently to idle. Flying controls, including the rudder, held central. Roll wings level when airspeed is in excess of 100 knots. Recover to level flight above 150 knots with the throttle at idle. When recovery is complete and the aircraft is not in buffet, Open the throttle to check the engine is surge-free. But just about everything else was fair game. It's true to say that the vast majority of my phantom flying had been at fairly low G. Only in combat did we get to the higher levels, but as an instructor we were regularly subjected to high G manoeuvres, and most of us noticed that our shirt collar sizes increased as our neck muscles grew to stop our heads falling off. 
Life at Valley soon settled into a pleasant enough routine of a regular work schedule, lots of time at home and a good social life, none of which compensated for being away from the front line. Once more, to amortise the cost of our training, we were going to suffer a four-year tour of duty. After the initial novelty of flying and teaching wore off, we realised that we were in a sausage machine. Didn't matter how well we did, once a course of our fine students graduated and were presented with their pilot's wings, another bunch of eager faces would appear in a briefing room to start their journey through advanced flying training. We did our best to spice things up and took every opportunity to create some variety. We might string a couple of tactical formation training trips together, which would allow us to land away at another base for lunch. This would usually be an operational station, so that blogs could see some real fighters or bombers, and get a taste of what was ahead of them if they worked hard enough. The variety of flying we got also gave us a break from the routine. A day's work might involve an instrument flying trip, a low-level navigation sortie, and a high-level spin and general handling flight. It certainly wasn't a job where one could sit back and cruise along. The mixed bag of lessons we had to be prepared to teach was large, and we often had to work harder than our students to be prepared for each flight so that we gave of our best. For example, an easy, low-level navigation trip around Wales might involve 50 minutes at 420 knots, rarely getting above 250 feet, with two or three IP-to-target runs. These were short legs of two or three minutes, flown on a highly detailed map, that took us from an easily recognisable feature to find and identify something small and insignificant. Whilst it was sometimes inevitable that the student pilot might get lost and stray off track, the instructor was always supposed to know where the aircraft was, avoid noise-sensitive areas and other no-go spots. For us, this meant free navigating with a thumb on the map whilst Bloggs dove around trying to find his way back to somewhere he recognised and, if need be, to give a prompt to help. An hour or two before the flight, we would often be on the phone to some civil airport that we might be passing, asking for permission to arrive unexpectedly for a practice force landing. Then, at the appropriate moment, we would announce to Bloggs that he had hit a bird and the engine had failed. As our budding fast jet pilot pulled for height and came back to gliding speed, if he had done his pre-flight work, he would know which way to turn for the nearest airport, and hopefully he would have picked the one that we had coordinated with. Getting to the overhead on the right frequency was only part of the job as we fully expected them to be able to complete a practice force landing to a touchdown, whereupon we would give them the engine back and set off to complete the sortie. I see in my logbook that there were a few interesting moments in that first year of work. Somebody snatched a 9G pull-up on me when he came around a valley to find his way blocked by low cloud and did an overly energetic emergency pull-up. 
we diverted to our satellite airfield of Mona one day when someone blacked the runway at Valley by running off the surface. The term comes from the RAF's airfield colour code system, which was an easy way to advise of the weather. Blue was nice, white was still nice. Green, probably an instrument approach required. Yellow one and two, definitely required an instrument approach, down to minimums, and red was foggy and horrible, go away. But black meant closed. Then, as my first year came to a halt, it was time to go up to Standard Squadron to try for an upgrade. Standards were the bigwigs who instructed the instructors. They rarely dirtied their hands flying with students, unless someone was having a big problem and needed special coaching, and every once in a while we had to knock meekly on their door and present ourselves for evaluation. An interesting aspect of instruction was that we usually only demonstrated an event once or twice. From then on, our student did all the flying. This actually meant we didn't get much time flying the aircraft, but when we did, our demos were supposed to be spot on first time. After all, if we couldn't do it perfectly every time, how could we ever disapprove of our students' efforts? I see I was drilled through my paces over 14 flights, demonstrating everything from effects of controls and stalling to spins and forced landings, culminating in a check flight with the chief instructor, who thankfully raised my category from B2 to B1. After a year in the job, I was now halfway up the greasy pole of instructorship, and had crawled my way from average to high average. Woot woot. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. Uh, you could also help Plane Tales out by leaving a review, if you could, at Apple Podcasts or on your podcatcher of choice. See you next time.